Good morning. My name is Matt Dan and I'm a yogi or a yogi, somebody who practices yoga. And I'm with one of my yoga teachers. I am Monica Montanaro. I'm a, a yoga teacher or a yoga instructor. And we may also have interventions um, from Oreo, who is a dog. <laughs> who likes to be in on everything. He doesn't like to be excluded. So if we left him out of the studio, then all you would hear is the dog scratching. But my dog is a yogi also. He practices with you. He does. In the mornings, he obviously does downward dog and upward facing dog. Yeah. Every morning, <laughs> very often. And he does it really well. <laughs> so um, let's talk about when we first met mm -hmm. and maybe why we've decided to talk about yoga together. Mm -hmm. So uh, I first met you in December 2018. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, right? But it yeah. seems like a very long time ago. Yeah. Um, I was under very a lot of stress at work and I had been doing a personal practice at home. Um, a friend recommended um, why, why Yoga, which the is studio. the studio that yeah, we go to. Where I teach. I looked on the schedule and on Friday evenings then um, there was a candlelight yoga. Yes, a candlelight yoga, supposed to be a soft practice. Yes, supposed to be. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, that sounds like a really nice way to start. It'll be cozy and comfy. <laughs> And reassuring. And it was heated as well, wasn't it? It was yes. heated. It was a heated candlelight class. Really, my impression after three minutes in there was like Monica was like the dance teacher from uh, from the movie Fame. Uh, you, you're old enough to remember that? No. Okay. Well, her, her famous catchphrase was, you want fame? Well, fame costs. And this is where you start paying in sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, yeah. I'm definitely paying in sweat here. But what I loved about that class and what made me go back um, was this wonderful balance of challenging me and everybody else in the room without pushing people too far, mm. giving a little bit of background as to what we were doing and why we were doing without being preachy. Mm sharing some of your story and mm. um, you always have to share your story even though Monica puts her phone on sometimes it makes funny noises so she has to explain why <sighs> and I really felt at home and um, I was going to be able to learn something and then the second time we met is when I came to you for um, a private class yes I remember that very well I remember um, you had a problem on your wrists like yeah. sensitive wrists and uh, I remember I've been preparing that class. Yeah, I don't do very often private classes, so I get uh, somehow a little bit more uh, conscious. And I want to know exactly what the student wants to know, exactly so that I can help uh, him or her in the best possible way in that one chance that we have to have a one-to-one. -one. Which, um, if you ever have the chance to do, it's a good thing to do to talk to somebody on a one-on-one -on -one basis and, and get some alternatives for different asana so that yoga is always helping and not hurting. Yeah. Kind of the third time we, I guess, when we properly met and got to know each other was um, on a yoga retreat. In Sicily. In Sicily. My first time in Sicily. What an amazing place. <sighs> yes. 
we want to talk about why we've come to yoga, how we got to yoga, and share a little bit of our stories with you in the interests of providing something positive um, for somebody to listen to. Um, and also, I can't help feeling like I'm a little bit of an advertisement for yoga. Having grown up in a religious context, I'm very aware of not proselytizing too much mm. and not saying this is the way and the only way. Oh, no. It, I think my message would, would be, this is what happened to me. This is what helped me. And I hope that in sharing this, it might help you. So... When did you first start doing yoga? So the first time I have practiced yoga was when I was uh, 17 years old. I was um, diagnosed with a chronic disease, with diabetes type 1. And people around me and my family were telling us that uh, if I practice yoga, I would have um, solved um, the problem of living with diabetes. Didn't, of course, believe in that, but um, I wanted to try anything I could to improve my my condition, my health condition. Um, I was diagnosed when I was living in the United States. I won a scholarship to go to school for one year in the States, and halfway through the year, I became... Uh, ill and of course hospitalized and of course I was explained everything about diabetes and uh, one thing for sure that I was told was uh, that if I didn't live a healthy lifestyle I would have certainly experienced all the side effects of, uh, of the disease which are not very pleasant. Guided and pushed by this sort of uh, daily objective of not getting worse, I would have tried anything that would have somehow improved my my condition, not only physically, but also psychologically. Because I think when you live with a chronic disease, there's a lot of uh, emotional processing, a lot of, uh, a lot of thoughts, a lot of emotions around it. So it's not just physically, but also to have that peace of mind, to have that tranquility, the calmness to deal with whatever challenges the, the disease is presenting you on a daily basis. Were you asking why me a lot? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, why me? Why me? What have I done wrong? <laughs> yes. Yes. And then you realize that uh, it is as it is. And in fact, it was through the practice of um, Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, that the why me question sort of faded away. It was not important anymore. Why me? What was important was um, how can I how can I improve my health every single day? How can I live happily um, my daily life? How can I how can I include diabetes in my life? And it's not something external outside of myself, but it's part of myself. And so really accepting the whole condition almost as a blessing in a way because it, I end up by actually being very grateful for this disease to have come into my life because it taught me to be a lot more aware of my choices, uh, not just of food, but also choosing the right people, um, choosing the right uh, activities, choosing the right attitude to reduce at the maximum the, the risks of, of having, you know, all the um, 
side effect, you know. And practicing this Buddhism, the, the Japanese Buddhism, has really, really, really increased the level of awareness about my health and and my responsibility, how much I am responsible of everything that happens to me. That sounds actually, from this side of the table, that also sounds like an awesome responsibility to go to a situation where, where you say... I am responsible for everything that happens to me. Mm. When these seemingly bad things happen at the beginning, you don't see that they're these counterintuitive blessings. So I'm surprised by, by that, but I also kind of understand it. And certainly taking responsibility is something that I have um, also had to learn, but we'll... Um, we'll talk about parallels in our in our stories <laughs> yeah. in, in a minute. Just as an aside, Japanese Buddhism, if you needed to explain it in two or three sentences, could you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Japanese Buddhism. This Buddhism is based on a, on a practice of a, a mantra that it's Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. Uh, it is supposed to somehow rise the level of energy and awareness and consciousness. And um, so it's like somehow you look at your life not anymore uh, only in one direction, but it's like you look at your life uh, at 360 degrees, mm -hmm. meaning that um, if you have an issue or uh, that make you unhappy or um uncomfortable uh, the tendency is often to give responsibility out to the outside world it's yeah. his fault her fault it's uh, uh, you know we, we never want to take responsibility of what happened to us practicing this mantra creates this sound it's like a meditation and somehow it has the same effect of really uh, allowing you to see all the opportunity that you have around you, not just to see one version of your life, but to see everything else, to open up completely. And in fact, at the beginning, when I was told about this diabetes, they were telling me it's very mystical. So they were telling me to write down my objectives. So mm -hmm. Why would I practice? I would practice for this and that and that and that. And, I, and of course, there was, I want to practice to get rid of diabetes. Yeah. No. That was the first thing. I want to get rid of diabetes, get rid of diabetes. And then meanwhile, life happened. And uh, and at the end, I think I realized I'm, I'm, I realized that objective of getting rid of diabetes because diabetes was not anymore an enemy, but it was a teacher uh, and still is a teacher, a daily teacher. So in fact, I really learned to look at my life and accept my life, not just from one point of view, but really accepting everything that happens to me and make a, and, and learning from it. And so I really, that's why I said I'm really a grateful, I'm grateful for diabetes because on a daily basis it reminds me how much I have to be conscious of my choices and complaining that I cannot eat sugar or that I cannot drink wine or that, you know, I cannot do all these things that people enjoy very much doing, which I also enjoy doing, but I know that there is, I need to find a balance. There's always about balance. Yeah. So this Buddhism is really telling you that if you chant this nam myoho renge kyo and you put uh, uh, some, some sort of uh, objective, you want to change your lives. In fact, what you change is not the external life, but you learn to change yourself. And by changing yourself, you see the effect of your changes, of your inner changes into the outer world, into how people react to you because they have not changed, but you have. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you have changed make things a little better in a way. And so that 
the mystical aspect of this practice is that in fact you've created a change within your way of thinking, of acting, that is manifested outside. So they speak a lot about cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Um, So everything you say, you think and you do is a little seed that you plant into your life. It will have an effect. So that effect, if you want to have a positive effect, then you have to sort of put a positive cause in your life. And that comes back to you, then your choices, your thoughts, your the, the internal conversation that you have with yourself as well on a daily basis. It's important to notice that kind of conversation, the quality of the conversation you have with yourself. It happened to me last night, for instance, I was having a whole conversation in my head about my husband coming back home on Friday mm-hmm. after six months of separation. And, uh, and I was like... Uh, talking and talking and talking and then I stopped and I was like oh okay Monica if there are things that worries you then you know just uh, change the conversation you're having in your head yeah this is also one of the things that I admire about you as a teacher maybe this is true for other teachers as well and I don't mean to be I hope this isn't going to come out the wrong way you don't lead an extraordinary life You don't float above the pavement as you walk down the street. You are, you know, you're a person with who faces many of the same difficulties and problems Mm. in life that everybody else does, plus the big one of um, having diabetes. And often your reaction to those things is, um, is as human as anyone else's. But you have all of the, you know, you have the tool, you have the practice of yoga, you have... Uh, something to help you to counteract that. Seeing yoga teachers use yoga like that, it's, you know, there's there's one teaching of you need to put your knee further to the right here or whatever, that's one kind of teaching. But then also mm-hmm. to see an example of, well, look, you know, my life can be as complicated as yours, but I step back, I do this, and this is how I deal with it. That's another kind of teaching, which maybe you're not even mm-hmm. aware of. No, no. <laughs> But that's um, uh, one of the things that I admire about you is you do come out with these little stories to say, okay, well, this is, you know, only yesterday this was happening. And I can equate to those kind of, you know, to that kind of thing in my life. So you practice Buddhism for how long and how did that transition into um, practicing yoga. yoga. So I started, as I said earlier, at 17, the Atha yoga practice, and then life happened, and then I sort of, it faded away. I started to travel, so I didn't practice it anymore, and then practiced uh, this Buddhism for about 17 years. It was in the 90s, um, I think 93 maybe, or something like that, and it was through a friend of mine, and the the reason to convince me towards Buddhism was always the same. It will cure diabetes. Mm. <laughs> you get rid of diabetes, you practice this Buddhism, your diabetes will disappear. And I looked at my friend, I was like, please. <laughs> but okay, based always on the same things that I said before, like if, if I have something else to try and then I know that it will not hurt me, why not you know so let's go and and uh, and explore this this option of uh, buddhism so the way it was organized uh, it was meetings and uh, readings so i got i tried to sort of do that but of course my mom being uh, strongly catholic was uh, absolutely against it 
me even considering reading about Buddhism. It wasn't even practicing. It was just learning about Buddhism was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And so, of course, they tell you that you have to chant the mantra twice a day in the morning and in the evening. So... I was um, taking this great advantage of my mother being uh, obsessed with the cleaning and vacuum cleaning our house. Yes. So at that time, we lived in a house of uh, three floors. So she would start from the basement going up to the bedroom and it would take her a good, you know, 45 minutes to Mm -hmm. do the whole. And so I had 45 minutes where I could practice and she wouldn't hear. At the top of my head, yeah, and she wouldn't hear me. So by the time she was in the bedroom level, I was done with my chanting. So that was perfect. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful picture. So, you know, rebellious teenagers want to go and drink alcohol behind the bike shed or smoke <laughs> cigarettes or get a girlfriend or boyfriend. And you were rebelling by... <laughs> Chanting, <laughs> chanting Buddhist mantras while your mother was vacuum cleaning. Yes. <laughs> so, of course, while I was living under my parents' roof, I could not really openly go to meetings. But I, when I moved to Brussels the first time, uh, I, I came here for at the university in Liège. Mm-hmm. I was doing a, a, a year of university. And so, of course, there I started to practice. And I was with my friend who introduced me to the Buddhism. So we were both supporting each other. Then I went back home for a short year. Then I came back to Brussels again. And I was I was having a hard time living in Brussels, struggling with money, struggling with, you know, finding my place and creating my life and being a responsible adult. I was still in my 20s. And so I called the organization and I set up a meeting. And here we go. I started um, from that moment, 93, 94, maybe. Uh, 95, I don't know, I, I started to practice. And I kept practicing until 2010, 2000 and uh, something like that, 11. And I traveled a lot at that time. I was in Moscow and I met Buddhist people in Moscow, in Poland, and I practiced with Polish people in Czech Republic, in Slovenia. So I, wherever I was going, I would mm-hmm. find people practicing the same Buddhism, as much as it is with yoga. Mm. So wherever you go, you will always find someone or a community that will practice yoga and you can, you know, join them. And it's almost certain that you'll find people with whom you share the same passion, interests or way of looking at life. And and that saved me a lot because I've been living a very, uh, in a way, isolated life because my husband travels for work. So we were moving often. And so first Buddhism and then yoga helped me really to... And never feel alone. Yeah. Uh, and it's so important to find people that share common interests with you. A community. Yeah. Yes, it's really important. But then I realized that I was not able to do the two things together at the same time. I was not able to practice Buddhism and yoga at the same time. Why not? Well, because they they teach basically the same things in a different way, Mm. but they teach the same things. To learn about yoga, you really need to put a lot of time and, and, and attention and dedication to it. And to practice Buddhism, you need to put a lot of attention, dedication to it. So I realized that I could not do the two things at the same time well. So I had to choose one. And knowing that I was not going for something that was against what the first thing was teaching me. I was not really going against Buddhism. I was just uh, shifting, uh, looking at the different perspective 
it's a different way to look at the same thing. You know what I mean? It's like you're doing something different. Maybe, of course, the yoga is more physical. And the awareness towards your body and yourself, I think, is more profound and more intense. Whereas the Buddhism is uh, very mental. It's like, oh, I'm going to rationally, you know, I'm going to have a determination. These are the things that I want to change. These are the things that I want to improve. I'm going to chant this mantra for six hours in a row. Uh, which I did. I remember I did chant once for five and a half hours in a row. It was wow. draining. Yes. But then I said yes to my husband to live with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was a pretty important decision. It was an important decision. It needed time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, and I remember one of the members of the Buddhist community, at that time we were living in London, this... Um, uh, African lady who was wonderful. She taught me a lot. She was a beautiful astrologer, very nice person. And she told me, oh, if you're starting yoga, you will give up us. I was like, no, I'm not giving you up. <laughs> I'm just choosing a, a different perspective. And maybe I will never. So sometimes I find myself chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Mm -hmm. And I find myself uh, going through the books that I've bought and read. and uh, But I was not any more interested in the whole organization, the whole hierarchical organization. Because, of course, when you have thousands and thousands of people practicing a type of Buddhism, you need to organize them. So you need a structure. You need people that sort of put rules, sets of rules and organize the day of the meeting, the time of the meeting, the topics, so what to do, how to propagate, how to propagate Buddhism, how to let many people know about Buddhism, because this Buddhism is great, this Buddhism is amazing, this, you know, so it became a little bit like, ah, it's, it's too much. And uh, when I was in London, it was the only country where I actually understood and could speak the language. Um, so they, um, the organizer, uh, the responsible people of the organization, they sort of uh, sucked me into the organizations and gave me responsibilities to manage and to look after all the young ladies in Surrey and support them. So basically, I was having a part-time, like a job, more than a part-time job. But I was driving kilometers to go and visit these girls or new people who were interested in practicing Buddhism and supporting them and encouraging them and... And it felt like um, something was not anymore there, like for me. I was, it was becoming like a job almost. So I, I, I sort of uh, happily faded towards, moved towards yoga because yoga was bringing me back into myself. Right. So my practice, my body, my sensation, my, the meditation, my breath, the subtleness of everything that happens when you practice yoga, which I didn't have or never experienced when I was chanting. Because chanting was made with, loud, it's loud, you know, so mm -hmm. you create a sound, a noise, and, and you know better than me how difficult it is to control your mind when you're meditating. And so when you're chanting a, a, a Buddhist mantra like that, you tend to do it automatically and then your mind starts to wander and think and uh, worries and everything, So, um, which is a normal thing. But I think it was more the aspects of turning the Buddhist practice into a, a job yeah. that sort of uh, was not talking to me anymore. And I still, un I still love all the principles. I still put them into practice. I still follow 
a lot of their teachings, but I don't do anymore the active Buddhist practice uh, as I was told or yeah. expected. I mean, I find it interesting that for you, you couldn't do yoga and Buddhism at the same time, and that this woman that you know, I wonder if she said to you personally, Monica, if you go towards yoga, then you will, you know, you'll, you'll forget us. I wonder if that was a personal admonishment, knowing mm. how uh, how focused you were and how in-depth you like to be. If you get into something, you uh -huh. really get into it, I wonder. Because, of course, there are plenty of Buddhists who, um, for whom yoga is part of their Yeah, they Buddhist are able practice. to integrate the two things, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I, I guess the Buddhism was so, so full-on in my life that it was basically the only thing I was doing. Right. So anything else you did was going to distract <laughs> from that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As I said, because it was becoming like a real job. But I still believe truly in, in the taking responsibility, in the cause and effect uh, principle. Yeah. Um, so they still are part of me in non-violence, um, non the ahimsa, which is a concept that is part of uh, yoga as well. Mm -hmm. uh, contentment, uh, you know. Um, so all the, all the eight limbs of yoga are very much present also in the Buddhism. So it's not that I really took off for a completely different uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, philosophy or lifestyle. I just uh, stepped away from um, being uh, actively part of the Buddhist community. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I learned about this part of your story, which is something that you shared with the people who were um, on that retreat that we spoke about, this rang very much true with me because in that way we'd had similar experiences. Mm. Um, so if it's not too simplistic, we could describe you as an ex-Buddhist who practices yoga and I'm an ex-Mormon who practices <laughs> Practice yoga. yoga. Yeah. And again, it was sort of like, it was the, it was the situation of what was happening in my life as a Mormon. And for those who want to be correct, Mormon is not the name of the church. It's a nickname. The church is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm. And they prefer to be called LDS, or at least they did when I followed these kinds of things, which I don't anymore. I sort of had a similar kind of experience, kind of, in that if you are... Um, a practicing Mormon in good standing, then it absolutely takes over every aspect of your mm -hmm. life. Yeah. You socialize with other Mormons, you read the scriptures every day, you pray with your family um, at least twice a day. Like you're <laughs> like chanting a mantra while your mother is vacuum cleaning. <laughs> I mean, and it, it sounds really wonderful. So the family gets together, kneels down in the living room in a circle and family members take it in turns to pray. Mm. And Mormons don't have a formulaic pr prayer. Mm. Um, so the, the, there's a formula to start the prayer. There's mm. a formula to end the prayer. Um, but then you've got total free reign in between to say whatever you want. Really? Oh. Yes. Interesting. You, uh, interesting is the right word. Yeah. So you can, I don't know about other families, but, you know, in my family, 
the prayer was either a recital of things that you thought sound very holy that other people said, or it was a sort of passive aggressive um, dig at everybody else in the family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I guess that was our form of mantra. But Mormonism really, it fills every part of your life. Mm. And I understand why and how, and we can talk about, you know, the difference between cults and religions and, um, but certainly cults tend towards this idea of, of taking over every aspect of how you live and how you think and what you do. Yeah. And the Mormons were and pretty still much are like that. pretty much <laughs> like that. My counterintuitive blessing. So I'm not equating um, my situation with, with yours. They're very different, but I see it as a counterintuitive blessing and, um, and that it was um, being gay. Mm. And I had known that from quite an early age and I think I was maybe 13 or 14 when I um, came out to my mom the first time I mm. came out to her like three times and she wouldn't accept it mm. and couldn't accept it because um, you can't be um, a practicing homosexual and be a Mormon nowadays you can be an unpracticing homosexual and be a Mormon but um, in those days you couldn't and um, eventually when I was 25 I was excommunicated, which... Sounds harsh. Yeah, it is harsh. It is as harsh as it sounds. And um, it took all the foundations of my world away. Yeah. Because, I mean, you talked about, you know, investigating and reading and studying as part of being a Buddhist. And you do that as a Mormon, but it's also very easy to sort of, you can do it sincerely without really getting anywhere. I kind of found that as a Mormon, it's easy to um, to follow the rules, to follow what you're supposed to do without really properly being into it, mm. if that doesn't mm. sound. It's not that I wasn't into it, but it didn't seem to have the effect that it should have had. Mm. So I was excommunicated. So you're, it's not as bad as in some religions, you know, my family did still speak to me, but you can imagine those um, conversations weren't very easy. Oh no. The thing that brought me to yoga was that um, not so long, you know, a few years after I was excommunicated, um, my mother died, mm. um, age 62. It was a strange experience for me because I knew it was going to happen and I warned her, um, she's going to have surgery, um, for something. Mm. She didn't have to have it. Mm. Um, and I asked her, you know, what, what if, what if you die? And she said, well, if that's what God wants right. to take, you know, to take me away to do work in heaven, then that's fine with me. And I'm like. But what about us? What yeah. about your, and well, what about the 10 children, a number of whom have really um, special needs that, you know, that only my mother was providing. And it seemed that she sort of, this dedication to God and doing what he wanted kind of undermined her, um, her, oh. her, her, her role as a mother. And it kind of undermined sort of, it was hard to s- it was very clear in that moment that my mother loved God more than she loved me. 
mm-hmm. and her other children. <clears throat> and mm. yeah. And that also had kind of been my experience with her reaction to me being excommunicated and being gay. It's sort of like she loved God more than she loved me. Mm. Which this is something you thought at the time? Yes. Is this something you still think? After practicing yoga for so long, I try to be kinder to mm-hmm. her mm. and kinder to me. Mm. Um, there are, I'm, there's no point in having regrets in life, but mm. I missed a couple of opportunities to, um, let's say, challenge her. But for me, it took me a long time to work out um, LDS people believe that their system, their religion... Is the perfect one. Is the perfect one and the only one. Mm. And when you come out of um, uh, an organization like that, you have to start from first principles, which is, you know, first question, do I even believe in God? Mm. After so many years, I can't say yes or no. Mm. But what I can say is, I know how to live a good life. Mm. I know how to be kind to people. I've learned how to live a life with integrity, uh, taking responsibility, which um, I kind of didn't get the opportunity to do that so much as a Mormon. I'm not equating your diabetes with my being gay, but it was the thing that forced me to look at every aspect of my life and to start again and say, okay, what is it I believe? What is it I want to do with my life? Who am I? What kind of person am I going to be? Because my mother truly believed, and it's part of her, she honestly believed that, you know, I would be unhappy for the rest of my life. Right, yeah. She also believed that, you know, homosexuals wore um, uh, trench coats and were predatory and all of these other (laughs) terrible things, which is is strange because there was a period in her life when, uh, when she hung out with a lot of gay men. And I know that she still loved me and I know that she... She kind of indicated to me that um, that she knew I wasn't evil, mm. if that doesn't seem strange. Which was a relief for her, probably, no? Yes, but she still couldn't equate. Mm. I mean, I, in a way that made it worse, right? So clearly I'm not evil. I'm the same guy I've always been and as good and as kind. But still you and keep also the distance. Flawed. Yes, um, but she, you know, I. How could I be the same guy I was? Yeah. But also be somebody who's not worthy to go to heaven. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, because um, because I'm gay, and so after she died, that made that sort of listless, that sort of ungrounded feeling even worse. Because here was this mess that hadn't been reconciled. You know, my mother had died, presumably now doing her work in heaven that God was desperately needful for her to do. Yeah. That helped you to go through yeah, towards well, yoga. Yeah, and it's funny that you should that you say should say helped, but it's sort helped. of you know, it's a funny kind of help because mm-hmm. I just felt so desperate and so needing of some guidance. Mm-hmm. What I knew about yoga was that people who practiced it were physically fit. You know, mm, I, I yeah. was aware of 
you know, pictures of yogi, Hindu yogis in, um, in, in India who are like 200 years old or, well, maybe just 97 yeah. and still, and <laughs> still standing amazing. on their heads and, yeah. Yeah, and looking amazing. Um, so I knew that people were physically fit. I also understood that people were kind and accepting and a little bit kind of hippie-ish. Yeah. Not anything goes, but that, but that you know, they were certainly less judgmental than the culture I'd come from. And I also knew that practicing the asana and um, some of the little things that we do in class would help to replace in my life the ritual that I'd lost. Yeah. You know, you, know, you talked about chanting twice a day, yeah. um, which you um, probably did less or not at all um, once you really got into yoga. And for me, sort of, you know, no, no personal prayer, no family prayer, no, no sitting for the, you know, sitting in church for, for three hours. And the thing I really missed the most was singing hymns. Oh, yes. There, you're, you're... Yeah. And there is, you know, there's nothing like singing a devotional song together with people. Or even just singing, you know, your favorite pop song with friends. Yeah, singing yeah. together is it's really a joyful a, moment. It's really a joyful moment. I don't know what it is um, about it that that adds to the human spirit, but again, sort of like my first yoga class where we where everyone chants Om. Yeah, it was sort of a, oh, this you know this is as good as singing hymns. I mm. feel this. I feel this connection to everybody in in having this sort of motivational noise. You can't really call um a song. No, it's a, it's a mantra as well. Yeah, so. a nice easy one to remember. Yes, and it flows in. It's beautiful. I notice every time we chant om at the beginning of the class and at the end of the class, how the quality of the sound is different. It's more harmonious. Yeah. At the end of the class, in this Japanese Buddhism, they call it Itai Doshin. Itai Doshin, hundreds and thousands of people, but one voice. Yes. And this is what happens in uh, in a yoga practice. Now, when the first home is like, om, 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 you have all sorts of sounds. Mm. And then the final om is uh, exactly Itai Doshin. It's just um, 40 people and one voice. I think it's very powerful, very uniting, very powerful. Uh, sensation. I feel the same way. For me, it is a it's a wonderful substitute, or even better than the kind of feeling of community that I got mm-hmm. as a as a practicing Mormon. And so, you know, I think this is where this is kind of where our worlds collide. Yes, um, where where we see the aspects, the good aspects of the of religions that we were following, kind of being duplicated or carried on or developed in yoga but without the need to be so dogmatic Mm. and so without the need to be instantly immersed and totally taken over your experience with buddhism my experience with mormonism especially when i was a missionary it's total immersion that requires total dedication and absolute belief mm. in the principles mm. Mm. and what I found with um, with yoga when I first started practicing it was that you could do it and not believe in anything yeah and that wasn't discouraged I never feel pressured to believe in anything particular 
But the more I did it, the more I wanted to find out what I was doing, um, which was a nicer way to, and a more encouraging and natural way to to progress. So I have to say, I started yoga in Luxembourg. Uh, Denise Pesh was my first teacher. She was a wonderful teacher. She still is. She still does this in Luxembourg. I just wanted to add one thing that I think the fact that in yoga, also in Buddhism, actually, there's no concept of fear or guilt. Mm. And so that gives you a little bit of a more relaxing attitude towards the practice. Because you're not afraid that you're going to go to hell if you don't practice yoga. You're not afraid of being punished uh, by, you know life or spirits or, you you know, it, it, mm. there, there's no fear and there's no guilt. Uh, but it's it comes down to you at the end of the day. It's, yeah. again, your responsibility. If you want to advance in your yoga practice, it's up to you. It's, it comes yeah. down to you. It's your choice. So you can only feel uh, guilt towards, uh, so it's your consciousness, in fact. But even that, guilt doesn't really help. No. to make you progress into into the yoga world. And there is another thing that kind of united us uh, in this yoga experience is that I, the, the second time I went back to yoga was when my grandmother died. Mm-hmm. And the Buddhism, the practice of Buddhism was not helping me at all to ease the pain. And I was very, very close to my grandmother. And, uh, and so... Practicing yoga was that one moment during the day when I was not feeling sad. Yes. I was actually so immersed into my practice and being aware of my body, my breath. It felt like I was going for a trip. I was going for a a journey into the fiber of my muscles, into uh, my veins, into my tendons, into my fascias, into my joints, into everything that made my body into the heart rate, into my the rhythm of my breath. It was so incredible that I, I was actually not feeling sad while I was practicing and even afterwards. Mm. So I, I felt that was quite magic. It was quite uh, incredible. Yeah. So it really helped. And I have the same sensation what do we call i mean is it a session a good yoga a good practice practice a good practice um whether it's on my own in the morning or or with other people um uh, in a class a good practice sort of challenges me enough physically to to unite the breath and the body Mm. and it calms the mind and the focus on on the breath and the asana does calm the mind and take away you stop obsessing about things that you that you have done and I find it easier to do that when I'm doing a practice than when I'm doing meditation (laughs) (laughs) and I I was thinking the other day or I might uh, in the interest of talking about something else here I might make a list of um of things I accidentally think about while While meditating meditating. but it was just too embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) There are a number of things as human beings that we experience that are just so profoundly upsetting, shocking. And your experience and my experience are nothing compared to many of the lives that mm. other people have to live who, who you know, I'm aware that 
I enjoy immense privilege living how and where I do. Mm. Even if some things in life have been difficult, it's, you know... Not Which is what life is about. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, having... Yeah, I've forgotten my trail of thought, so I'll edit that bit out, I guess. Um, oh, yes. Gra um, sadness, um, shocks, human. Uh, and, and I, too, like you, I took a hiatus from yoga. So when we moved from Luxembourg to Brussels, I it took me a long time to find um, a class that I was comfortable with. Maybe in those days there weren't so many studios. I don't think there It were. would have been 20 years ago, yeah. well, 18 years ago. Um, and I remember going to an Iyengar class. Have yeah. you... Um, I have experienced Iyengar in India. Yeah. And so there are dozens of props. Yes. Um, it takes forever to get into a posture. It takes forever to get into a posture. And it's a little bit frustrating having to work with all of these props. And I mean, I don't want to disrespect uh, people who practice Iyengar. And I do see how... It really helps you to perfect your mm. asana. But at the time, for me, it seemed like I was going to a bondage class or something. <laughs> no, because you would, you know. But you, also they have a whole system how to fold the blanket, uh, how to fold it in how many ways, in which direction. It has to be a specific blanket. It has to be a specific chair. It has to be, yes, I'm... Yeah, there are, there, there are variations of yoga that can be as prescriptive, let's say, as the religions that we yes. that we left. But that's not all yoga, and there are no, extremes. No. Um, but it's true that whoever uh, whoever you meet that is a a teacher in Iyengar or Ashtangar or Anusara or Atha Yoga, they will. They will try anything to show you that their style is the real style of yoga. Right. Yeah, the real yoga. And nowadays it's so confusing because uh, you you see the word yoga behind all sorts of things, mm. which becomes also very disappointing to see how the word of yoga is just a marketing tool that attracts people. And uh, and then whatever is the description before, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's yoga, so it must be good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your time, Monica. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I think next time we're going to talk a little bit more, explore a little bit more this connection between our experiences in religion. Yeah. And the similarities between that and the differences between yeah. the religions we've practiced and yoga. Yes. Um. And we look forward to, to talking to you again then. Thank you. I'm looking forward to see you again.